0: Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, speaking see that.
1: Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's the truth, the very word of God. We should ask that the Lord would teach us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe, help us overcome our unbelief. We we need to hear your voice today. We need the joy the spirit. We need to know the power of your resurrection at work in our lives. Lord, teach us. Help us to think your thoughts after you. And we'll transform our hearts. Transform our hearts, we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. He is risen. My name is Jeff Wilkins and I am the pastor here at City Church along with Mitchell Carter. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are so, so thankful to have you with us. My guess is you've picked up on this theme which you always hear about at Easter. It's the resurrection. We think the resurrection is a pretty big deal. In fact, I would tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the decisive event of the Christian faith. It is the most important event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But well, what do we mean? What do we believe? What, 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 what's wrapped up in that? What, what do we mean when we, when we say that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, first of all, we believe that Jesus Christ, who was both fully God and fully man was executed by Roman soldiers. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves and he really physically died. He died the death of a common criminal. He was buried, he was entombed. But the death of Christ was more than physical. You may remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays to the Father, he pleads to the Father, he he falls down on his knees and he begs the Father. He says, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What's going on there? What, what, What is this cup? If you read through the Old Testament, you will find this cup mentioned 15 times. It's a, it's a common image. Let me read to you just a couple of passages and ask you to think about this question. What is this passage telling me about this cup? Psalm 75, verses seven and eight. It is God who executes judgment. Judgment putting down one and lifting up another for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Or Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wine, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. What is this cup? what does this tell us? Jesus is talking about the wrath of God. He, and he's telling us that the horror of the cross wasn't so much physical torture and pain, although it was certainly torture and pain. It wasn't ridicule and mocking, although he certainly was ridiculed and mocked. It was It was what Jesus cried out from the cross. Do you remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's what we sing so often, what we sang Thursday night, that the Father turned his face away. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And on the cross, the Father made the Son sin who knew no sin. And you have to ask the question, why? Well, Paul tells us on the, on the cross, the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup of the wine of the wrath of God so that we might drink the cup of blessing. Jesus went to the cross so that we might come to the table. But what is the significance of the resurrection itself? The resurrection of Jesus. Do you remember Christ's last words recorded in the Gospel of John? Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished, and then Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And with the resurrection, what God the Father is saying is it is finished. Yes and amen. Beloved, the real, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is so important that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Eric was alluding to earlier, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are all, we are of all people most to be pitied. We think the resurrection is a big deal. Now, now, what do we learn when we look at Acts 17? When we see Paul interacting with these people in Athens, when we see Paul interacting with people at the Areopagus, friends, the world in which we live is really not that much different than the first century world seen in Athens. In fact, the Scottish theologian and pastor Sinclair Ferguson says that the first century Athens was, in some ways, the first postmodern city. It was both a very religious city and it was full of very religious people. And it was an incredibly pluralistic city. People who liked to talk about my truth and talk about your truth, but didn't dare talk about the truth. And that becomes very clear when we look at verse 16. When Paul walks into the city, what does he see? He sees a city full of idols, submerged in idols, a forest of idols. Xenophon, a Greek philosopher, referred to Athens as one great altar, one great sacrifice. And he said that it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. What does that have to do with us? Well beloved, idols are not limited to ancient societies and idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many modern idols and there are many sophisticated idols. An idol is a God substitute. An idol or uh, uh, any person or anything that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is an idol. Ideologies can be idols. So can fame and wealth and power, sex, food, alcohol, other drugs, parents, spouses, children, friends, work, recreation, television, possessions, the church, theology, even Christian service. They can all be idols. They can all usurp the place of God in our lives. This is the city to which Paul went these are the kinds of people that Paul preached, Jesus and the resurrection. And if you think about it, it's really not that different from our world. It's really not different, that different from us. So how do the Athenians respond to Paul's preaching? Well, the same way that many people in our world, our day and age, respond to, to the idea of the resurrection. They respond with, with skepticism. When Paul rolls into Athens, what does Paul do? He does what he always does. He goes to the synagogue and then he goes into the marketplace, which is a place where you would not only buy products, but it's a place where people would gather and talk. It's where people would exchange ideas. Paul goes to the center of the city. And what does he do? He begins to reason with people, with them about Jesus and the resurrection, this of course catches the attention of some philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans believed that the gods were so remote, they were so far away, they were so removed, they were so transcendent from our everyday reality that they took no interest in and they had no influence on human life, human affairs. As a result, the Epicureans' modus operandi was live for pleasure live for the pleasure of today. If they had a motto, it was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that the supreme God was more like an impersonal force, think Star Wars. This force that's infused into all of creation, this this God force was was utterly imminent, but he was indistinguishable from creation. And, And they believed that the best way to live was to live your life in, as, uh, with radical reason, with, 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 with thinking rationally, that, that to live the life, the best life now, was to live in line with this God force. If they had a motto, it would be grin and bear it, or keep calm and carry on. And, and these people, these philosophers... They invite Paul to come to the Areopagus to explain himself and to explain what he's preaching, Jesus and the resurrection. Now what you need to know is that the Areopagus was the philosophical and religious gatekeepers of Athens. They were the the Greek intelligentsia. They were the governing council of Athens. And they had authority to regulate the teachers, the visiting lecturers who would come to town because of greeks or because of athens philosophical history this this invitation that that paul received it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a listening party that he was being invited to they didn't just want to hear what he had to say it was it was an examination it was an inquisition because Very much like today, the idea of a real physical bodily resurrection seemed absolutely ludicrous. But more than that, the idea of a real physical bodily resurrection went directly against the founding character of the Areopagus itself in the 5th century BC. A playwright by the name of Aeschylus wrote a play that would have been very well known in the days of Paul. In this play, the god Apollo inaugurates the court of the Areopagus. And one of the things he says is that when a man dies, when his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. In other words, resurrection is flatly ruled out according to the ground rules of the Areopagus. That's why in verse 18, These thinkers describe Paul as a babbler. He's he's talking crazy. Perhaps you can understand now why Sinclair Ferguson calls Athens the first postmodern city. Athens then doesn't sound all that different from Nashville now. And for that reason, given their skepticism about the resurrection from the dead, Paul's response to them may be helpful to us. So, how does Paul respond? In verse 16, we read that when Paul arrives in Athens, his spirit was what? It was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That Greek word that is translated provoked in our passage is the same word that is translated provoked in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is a word that is used to describe how God responded to idolatry. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott writes, when the Israelites made the golden calf at Mount Sinai, when later they were guilty of gross idolatry and immorality in relation to the Baal of Peor, and when the northern kingdom made another calf to worship in Samaria, they provoked the Lord God to anger. We don't like to think about God being angry. That's how the Bible describes him reacting to idolatry. And, and, and he's right. John Stock goes on to say, sometimes scripture calls this emotion, this anger that God experienced when he saw the idolatry of his people as jealousy. And he concludes to be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains or sport is sinful, right? That makes sense. We, we think of, of jealousy and we think that's, that's not a good thing, but If a third party enters a marriage, a jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous because the intruder has no right to be there. Beloved, Paul is provoked because he is jealous for the glory of God. He is jealous for the worship of God. Now, what I want you to see is what Paul does when he finds himself provoked. What does Paul do? He, he doesn't turn away from the Athenians, does he? Rather, he, he turns toward them. He doesn't beat them over the head with his Bible or condemn them or throw his arms up in the air in frustration or call down the curses of God on them. He doesn't retreat into a holy huddle. Instead, he moves toward them. He engages them. He reasons With them. Paul's goal isn't to be right, although I believe he is right. His goal is that they would know the living and true God and they would love the living and true God, who they describe in verse 23 as the unknown God. So, what does Paul say to them? Look at verse 22 and 23. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said men of Athens I perceive that in every way you are very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown god what therefore you worship is unknown I proclaim to you What is Paul saying? He is saying, this this ocean of idols and this ocean of altars, particularly this altar to the unknown God tells me something about you. It tells me that for all of your religiosity, for all of your searching, for all of your study, you still haven't found what you're looking for. You aren't satisfied. And this is as true today as it was 2000 years ago. Paul is also saying your attempts to know God have not led you to the knowledge of the living and true God. What you profess as knowledge is really nothing more than speculation. You've not encountered the living and true God. And you actually admit this because you have an altar to an unknown God. What is Paul trying to say? Beloved, he is reasoning with these people. And he is saying, if this is the case, how can you say anything definitive about God? How can you say what God can or can't do? How can you say what God requires of you and me? How can you say that God can't raise a person from the dead? You don't know God. Do you see what Paul's doing? He is he's exposing their inconsistency. On the one hand, they admit, there might be a God that we don't know. But on the other hand, they say they, are, they absolutely know this, that there is no resurrection. Don't you see the inconsistency in their reasoning? How can you know anything definitive about something you admit you don't know? But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't want to just expose their inconsistency. The second thing he does, we see in verses 24 to 28, Paul begins to describe to them the living and the true God, who is not limited by the imaginations of even the best minds. In verse 24, God is described as the personal creator who created everything and exists as the personal Lord who rules over heaven and earth. In verse 25, God is described as a sustainer and the giver of all life who doesn't need anything from his creation. In verses 26 to 28, God is described as a ruler of all nations who isn't infused into his creation, but who also isn't far from his creation. In verse 29, God is described as the father of any and every human being who who has ever or will ever walk the earth. What he's saying is that we are all created in the image of God. Made by God is stamped on our hearts. In verse 30 to 31, God is described as the judge who will one day judge the world in righteousness. Paul is describing the God that they don't know. He is describing the living and true God. The third, And third, he is humbling his listeners and he is humbling us. He is saying, your conceptions of God are fatally flawed because they are nothing more than the product of the human imagination. He's saying, can the pot really tell the potter what he can or can't do? He's saying, you think God is dependent upon you But the fact is you are utterly and completely dependent upon him. And he is saying you are in no position to judge God. God is the judge and he will judge you. He's saying what the prophet Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul is humbling his listeners. Fourth, in light of all that he has said, Paul raises the question, if this is God, is anything too hard for him? And finally, Paul is giving hope That's what he's getting at in verse 31 when he talks about the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. What Paul is saying is that the day is coming when the resurrected Christ will return to set all things right. He will make all things new. That is the hope of the resurrection. Here's the thing even if you don't believe in the resurrection, you should want it to be true. Many people care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. Yet these people believe that the material world is all there is, that it was created by accident, and that eventually the sun will go out and life on the earth will simply expire. But don't you see, if this is where the world is heading, why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing you do will make any difference? But if the resurrection is true, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, And if he's going to return and set all things right, then what you do today matters. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, it's kind of interesting. But how in the world am I supposed to actually believe in the resurrection? How am I supposed to believe that somebody who was dead came back to life? Well, what you have to keep in mind when you talk about the resurrection is that we are talking about a miracle and we are talking about an event that took place in history at a particular time, in a particular place. When dealing with miracles and when dealing with history, we are dealing with things that are unrepeatable. You can't reproduce a miracle in a laboratory. You can't reproduce a historical event in a laboratory. So all you can do is examine the evidence and see if you can come up with a plausible explanation for what might really have happened. So let's think about that in two two ways. First is this, let's think about people. Let's think about Paul himself. What do you know about the Apostle Paul? Paul was raised a devout Jew. In fact, in Philippians chapter three, he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. If you read the early chapters of Acts, what you discover is that that the Apostle Paul, before he was an Apostle, was a notorious persecutor of the church. He was present at the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. Even after his encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Emmaus, the early church was still afraid of him. And yet in our passage, here he is, an apologist, an evangelist, for Jesus and the resurrection. How do you explain that transformation? Well, maybe he went insane. Okay. Let's think about the lives of other believers that we read about in the New Testament. What what, what about the other apostles? If you read through the four gospels, one thing that stands out about about the disciples is that they were more like the Keystone Cops than the dream team. They, they constantly misunderstood Jesus. They were always getting him wrong. They, they, they fought about who was the greatest among them. And perhaps most notably, after promising Jesus on the night that he was betrayed that they would never leave him or forsake him, that they would die with him if that's where he was gonna go, what did they do? Every single one of them runs Every single one of them runs and hides. And yet, after the resurrection, their lives are transformed, aren't they? They, they go from being afraid of, of, being, of huddling in a room in fear for their life to be, becoming so bold that history tells us that almost every single one of them were, were, were killed, were martyred for their faith. How do you explain that transformation? What about the church itself? How do, you, how do you make sense of the birth and the sort of spontaneous explosion of the church in the first century? How, how does this ragtag group of fair weather disciples virtually take over the world in the span of 300 years? In his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright says this. He says, it is extremely difficult to explain the rise of Christianity as a historical phenomenon without saying something solid about Jesus' resurrection. But, but what about the resurrection itself? We talked about people, what about, what about the resurrection? I mean, how can you actually believe that a dead man came back to life? Well, what you need to keep in mind is that while all four gospels have an account of Jesus' resurrection, no one, no one in the gospel story expected Jesus to rise from the grave. The women who first encountered Jesus, what are they doing? They're going to his grave to embalm him because he's dead. After Jesus death. The disciples are hidden away. They're, they're, they're in fear for their lives. Why? Because they think they're next. Maybe you remember the encounter between the resurrected Jesus and a couple of disciples as they were walking, they were making their way to Emmaus. Luke tells us that these disciples, they look sad. They were dejected. And when they explained to the resurrected Jesus who they did not recognize as the resurrected Jesus why they were sad, they said it is because Jesus of Nazareth who we thought would redeem Israel was condemned to death and was crucified three days ago. Nobody, nobody expected Jesus to rise from the grave and yet something happened because they all testified to the resurrected Christ. What about the fact that that Jesus' dead body was never produced? The easiest way to discredit a story that Jesus has risen from the dead is to produce Jesus' dead body, but nobody ever did. Some have suggested that perhaps the reason why no one ever produced Jesus' dead body is because Jesus didn't really die. He, he He just sort of fainted. He just sort of passed out. It's called the swoon theory. He was taken down from the cross and he was placed in this tomb and a rock was rolled in front of the tomb and after a couple of cool restful days when Jesus was feeling better he moved the stone that the Roman guards had put in front of the tomb and, and he snuck past the Roman guards and he made his way to rejoin the disciples. It's it's. it's, it's Hard for me to believe, but, but here's the thing. We sort of think about, well, could he have moved a stone? Could he have snuck past Roman guards? And those are reasonable questions to ask. But think about this. If, if this Jesus who passed out and sort of recovered his strength and made his way to the disciples, how, how, it happened, how do you think the disciples would have responded? Nobody would have ever said that Jesus was the Messiah. They would have been really thankful to see him, but nobody would have concluded that he is the Messiah. Nobody would have concluded that God's kingdom had arrived and nobody would have ever said that it was time for a mission to tell the world that Jesus is its rightful Lord. It just doesn't make sense. Now, this doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the grave. Certainly when you look at verses 31 and 32, there are some people who heard Paul and they mocked him. They continued to mock him. There were others who heard and thought, man, I I think I'd like to hear a little bit more about this. And yet there were some who believed. But here's the question. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, how do you explain all this? You, You can always say, well, I haven't got a better explanation, but I know this. Dead people don't come back to life. Friends, this is what you have to see. That is a faith statement, not a fact statement. That is a faith statement, not a fact statement that squares with our experience but our experience is limited. We are finite beings. We are fallen beings. And it doesn't explain the empty tomb. It doesn't explain the transformation of people from fearful into fearless. And it doesn't explain the birth and the existence of the church. But if God is who Paul describes him to be to the Areopagus, if God is able to do infinitely more than anything we could ever ask or imagine, And if you were willing to admit to the fact that you don't have exhaustive knowledge of all things divine, then is anything really too hard for the Lord? Beloved, Paul didn't go to the Areopagus simply to match wits with the best and brightest of his day. In verse 30, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What does this mean? It means that God through the apostle Paul is graciously calling them and he is graciously calling us to repentance. He is calling us to turn from, our, from the ways that we try to recreate God in our own image, limiting, limiting him to what we think is reasonable. He's calling us to turn from thinking we know more and we know better than God does. And he is calling us to bend the knees of our hearts to the way God has revealed himself to us, particularly in the person of the resurrected Christ. He promises, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You see, the real, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead wasn't just a miracle and it wasn't just a historical event. It was a preview of things to come The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the end. It is the inauguration of the new creation. As N.T. Wright puts it, with the resurrection of Jesus, God's new world has begun. And it has begun in the here and the now. It has begun in the hearts and in the lives of all of those who look to him by faith. Which is why Paul can say, In 2 Corinthians 5 17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 prays that we would know the power of the resurrection. That, that we would know that the resurrected power is our power. It's what Eric was talking about earlier. The resurrected power that transforms us more and more into the image of God. The resurrected power that, that not only transforms us continually, but one day will transform everything. That, that, that God will set all things right. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the resurrection. And this is what we celebrate every time we come to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together. And after praying a prayer, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the, 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 this cup is the, Where's Mitchell? What is it? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, given for the forgiveness of sins. Don't you hate that? Um, it's given for the forgiveness of sins. To the, very, to the very men who were gathered around him, who promised loyalty, we will go with you, we will die with you. To the very men that he knew would forsake him, who would leave him, would bail out on him, he hands them this bread, he hands them this cup, and he says, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul, years later, he's writing a letter to the church at Corinth and he says, every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes again. Beloved, this is what we celebrate at the table, the resurrection, the setting of all things right, the making of all things new. This is our only hope because he is our only hope. If you are a believer, if you look to Christ in faith, I invite you this morning, come to the table and feed on him. He has said that he will feed us, that he is as real, he is as spiritually real, spiritually present and real as this bread is physically present and real. And that he will feed our faith. He will comfort us, he will encourage us. He will meet with us. If you are not a believer, I would ask you not to come to the table this morning because coming to the table is a a profession of faith. It is saying, I'm I'm in. I believe that. Instead, pray, ask the Lord. If this stuff is really true, it sounds kind of crazy, but if it's really true, would you persuade me? And then as Eric offered earlier, please come, come talk to me, talk to Eric. We would love to talk to you about these things. We don't want to beat you over the head. We just want to talk. We want to listen. We want to learn. We want to ask questions. If that's you, come find us. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the musicians forward and we're going to serve them and then after that, we'll invite the rest of you to the table. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this meal that we get to celebrate every week that not only looks back to that first Lord's Supper, but looks forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. When you will return to judge the world in, rightness, in righteousness and, that you, and when you will make all things new. When you will make us into who we were created and redeemed to be and that you, when you will redeem all of creation. Thank you for this meal. Father, we pray that you would give us the faith that you require so that when we come to this table, we might actually encounter you as we commune with one another. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.